Phil, I guess we've known each other, what, about 30 years now, when I was still back in Dallas. I've lost count of how many times he's been to our conference, at least five or six times. We can't get rid of this guy. He just keeps coming back. Uh, Phil is an elder at Grace Community Church. He's probably John MacArthur's closest co-worker. Uh, he travels and preaches. He's also primarily an editor. Did you say you've edited some, like 80 of his books? And he's only edited three of mine, but my main editor is Elizabeth Smith that runs Grace and Truth Books with her husband, Rick. So I'm very indebted for your expertise and your advice as well as Elizabeth Smith's. What else can I say? There's only one Phil Johnson. Phil, come and bring us what God's put on your heart, mother. Yeah, someone asked me today when I met you for the first time, and I honestly don't remember. I, uh, I got hold of uh, his notes on the history of Calvinism, the history and doctrine of Calvinism, and it was really in some ways, the most helpful book I had ever read. And uh, hang on, sorry. I have hearing aids that are connected to my phone, and Siri will sometimes talk to me. So I have to turn it off. I'm sorry. Well, I'm the only one that can hear it. So, you know, if, if we need to keep up on scores or anything, I can do that. Anyway, I honestly don't remember the first time I met you, but it has been at least 30 years, and both of you are, both of you and I are septuagenarians now, so I think it's acceptable if we've forgotten details like that. So, you know, in fact, I don't remember the first year I came to this conference, but it was probably less than a decade ago, or about a decade ago, and the world has changed so much since then that it's almost frightening to see the speed with which there are moral changes, changes in the moral tone of our culture uh, that it's pretty easy for me to be a premillennialist because I look at the world and think it's getting worse. Evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And one of the outstanding things you see, and I, I'm sure you've all noticed it, is that uh, there's a lot of talk now about sexual perversions and things that we normally, in years past, wouldn't even whisper about, and now they hold pride parades to celebrate these things. And so you're aware, I'm sure, of some of the debates that are swirling around right now. Every sector of society regarding homosexuality and same-sex attraction and transgenderism and the whole LGBTQ campaign to normalize these various kinds of sexual perversions and, and deviant lifestyles. And uh, even within the evangelical movement, questions are currently being debated regarding how and whether the church should take a stand on moral issues like that these things that have taken the world by storm. Do we really want to upset our culture uh, and offend people by, by saying that these things that so many people want to celebrate are actually sinful abominations to God? Should the church then recognize same-sex marriage as a legitimate form of holy matrimony? These are the questions being raised within the evangelical movement. Is it okay for someone who is same-sex attracted to sort of 
give up the battle against that desire and simply embrace that as a mark of his true identity. Once a person has transitioned to a different gender, what is the loving response for the Christians? Should we simply follow the drift of our culture in these matters? Should we use the preferred pronouns of everybody we meet? Because after all, it does seem to a lot of people that it's unloving to oppose or fight against the whole rest of the world. And many Christians just don't want to do that. I think there's a, an idea that dominates evangelicals today that being nice, just being nice and sort of going along with society's flow, that's the sign of true sanctification. If you want to fight, that's looked down upon. Well, here's my short answer to all of those questions. How should the church respond to that? My answer would be that scripture is absolutely clear. And in fact, these are the very words of Jesus on the subject that he who created us from the beginning made us male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So one man, one woman, a husband and wife, covenanted to each other for life, that is God's design for marriage and sexuality, and there aren't alternatives to that. And it's not complex or mysterious. It's not blurry around the edges. Again, the biblical message is absolutely clear on all of this. Heterosexuality is God's design, and homosexuality is a heinous sin. And scripture makes that very clear. Same-sex attraction. Just like any heterosexual lust, an illicit desire, it's, those are perversions to be mortified, not identities to be embraced and celebrated. And maybe you're aware that even now in Canada, it is illegal to say that. Pastors in Canada are now literally under the threat of criminal prosecution if they preach from their pulpits what the Bible says about gender distinctions or sexual orientation. During the first week in December of 2021, the Canadian House passed Bill C-4, it's called. It passed both the Canadian House and uh, Senate with zero opposition and the bill became national law in Canada on January 7th a year and a half ago, 2022. And that bill declares, in these precise words, I'm quoting from it, that it is a myth to say that heterosexuality, cisgender gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth, that these are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. It's a myth to say that, they say. And so under the amended criminal code currently in force across all Canada, if you publicly declare that homosexuality or transgenderism are sinful perversions of God's design, you can be charged with a criminal offense. And it's considered a hate crime so that the, the punishment is, it can be severe. Those same kinds of policies will soon be adopted by legislatures in America as well, and probably very soon. As a matter of fact, ordinances like that are already under consideration in various states and local communities. For example, Lafayette, Indiana, the city council there has a similar proposal on their docket right now. And these 
Laws are being promoted as a safeguard against conversion therapy, which might make you think that what it outlaws is any attempt to change a person's sexual orientation by psychological means, but that's wrong. It, it only goes one way. You're not, what you're not permitted to do is tell someone who identifies as a homosexual that he's wrong to do that. And make no mistake, pastors are almost certainly going to go to jail over this in Canada, and furthermore, attempts will be made by Canadian authorities to close those churches that don't comply. You've already seen the prelude to that because of the COVID crisis. They put several, at least three, Canadian pastors in prison because they didn't, they didn't adhere to orders to close their churches during COVID. So we need to face this situation squarely because, again, the same kinds of laws are coming to America as well. Governments worldwide, really, are instituting similar policies that are designed not merely to silence those who understand that it's a sin to pervert God's design for marriage and procreation. But more than that, the pressure is on us not just to be silent, but to actively affirm and celebrate homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, and the entire alphabet of LGBTQRSTU perversions. And meanwhile, as I mentioned earlier, many people within the evangelical movement, men who self-identify as evangelicals and have even attained positions of influence and uh, you know, a loud voice in the movement, have also already begun to yield to the pressure of society. I'm sure many of you saw Andy Stanley held a conference on this just a couple of weeks ago, uh, celebrating Christians who identify as same-sex attracted or homosexual Christians. And still others have tried to modify or retrofit the Christian stance on sex and marriage to accommodate the notion that a, a person can be gay and Christian at the same time. So over the past decade, or, or really less than a full decade, there has been this sweeping change that has moved across the evangelical movement, and the opinion that currently dominates the evangelical community is that the idea that homosexual desire is not inherently sinful. It's okay to be same-sex attracted, they claim, as long as you don't act on that desire. The argument that some people seem to, is that some people seem to be same-sex attracted from birth, so they conclude, regardless of what scripture says, that this is God's design for some people. And in the wake of this sea change of attitudes towards homosexuality, a number of ostensibly evangelical religious organizations have sprung up to, to where they believe their main purpose is to legitimize this same-sex attraction among evangelical Christians and teach the rest of us how to embrace this and accept it. And, and at the same time, there are uh, uh, several minor Christian celebrities who now self-identify as same-sex attracted. They're faculty members at evangelical universities and, and seminaries and popular authors and Christian musicians and people who even write for once-respected evangelical organizations like the Gospel Coalition and they self-identify as same-sex attracted. And so it's become more or less the norm for evangelicals to believe that it's okay for a Christian to define his or her sexual orientation 
with terms like same-sex attracted or gay. And there, there are lots of self-styled evangelicals who openly maintain mutual romantic attachments to members of the same sex, and they want that to be normalized in the Christian community as well. That is commonly considered not merely okay, but something to glory in as long as the same-sex attracted couple supposedly remains celibate. In fact, one organization that is supposedly devoted to biblical ministry, their, their doctrinal statement would sound orthodox and all of that, uh, and they focus their ministry on same-sex attracted people. They promote a kind of coveted partner, covenanted partnership between homosexuals, where you have two men or two women living together as if they were married, but they promise to remain celibate. And, and just so you know, I'm not exaggerating. Here's a quote from their website proposing that arrangement. Question, what is a same-sex celibate partnership? Answer, a same-sex celibate partnership is an intimate coupling between two same-sex attracted or gay-identifying individuals bonded for life in a way similar to marriage, but of course, minus the sex. It's a life of devotion in which the united individuals become family, end of quote. So you know how that will go. And these ideas are a direct assault on the vital symbolism of marriage, which is picture of a union between Christ and his church. And, and in fact, it goes not only for this absurd notion of celibate partnerships, but also gay marriage and feminist notions of egalitarianism and every other departure from the idea of a lifelong monogamous relationship of a man who leaves his mother and father and is joined to his wife. Ephesians 5.23 says, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And verse 32 in that same chapter says that marriage itself, by God's design, marriage is a reference to Christ and his church. So any corruption of marriage or sexuality is a frontal attack on the whole point of the gospel. This is no minor issue. And it's not a matter where we can remain silent and just let the culture march unchallenged into deeper and darker levels of perversion. And don't be naive, that is what's happening. All of these same arguments that have been used to legitimize and normalize same-sex attraction are already being used to try to justify acts of pedophilia. No less than USA Today published an article on January 11, 2022, about a year and a half ago, in which they said that pedophilia, quote, is misunderstood and is a condition that is determined in the womb. And there are also people who want to make bestiality acceptable. They've already signaled that they're next in line. They're going to use those same arguments. And frankly, if it works for homosexuality, there isn't any perversion that those arguments won't work for. So there's no limit to the abominations human society is going to attempt to normalize once the salt of evangelical Christianity has lost its savor and the light of the gospel has been hidden under a bushel, society is going to cave to all of these things. But at the moment, evangelicals, including many evangelical thought leaders, are adopting more and more of the LGBTQ language and arguments 
you had two recent presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention who both claimed, they made the same claim, which I think they plagiarized from a woman who said it first, but their claim was that the Bible whispers about sexual sin while it shouts about materialism and greed. And what you're going to see in the passage I want to look at with you tonight is that both those types of sin are condemned emphatically in God's word, but statements like that, that God whispers about sexual sin, but he shouts about greed, that's intended to downplay the gravity of sexual perversions like homosexuality and transgenderism. And what these movements are doing is trying to browbeat other evangelicals into silence because these evils are currently so popular in secular culture and the people behind these movements in the evangelical movement desperately want to impress secular culture. Sadly, the vast majority of evangelicals easily buy into that kind of thinking. They think we have to win the world by making them like us, and so they drift along with the flow of culture. So there actually are very few signs that the visible evangelical movement as we know it today is going to unite in any kind of strong opposition to the LGBTQ pressure. But on the contrary, the level of gay acceptance among evangelicals is increasing noticeably year by year because evangelicals for decades have been committed to following the trends of secular culture rather than declaring biblical truth. But again, as I said at the start, scripture's clear on these things. Homosexuality in all of its expressions is a perversion of God's design. You simply can't be a Christian and embrace the cravings of homosexual lust at the same time. You may be tempted by those things, but if you don't wage war against those temptations and seek to mortify those desires, you need to examine yourself to see if you're really in the faith. There's simply no such thing as a gay Christian, someone who embraces that lifestyle or those desires and identifies himself that way. Homosexual desires are sins to be mortified not character qualities to be celebrated and affirmed. And one of the key passages where scripture makes this so clear is 1 Corinthians 6, and that's where I want to go with you tonight. So we're going to be looking at three verses. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. And while you're turning there, chapter 6, 1 Corinthians, here's some context. Paul is dealing with a long list of serious problems that were plaguing the Corinthian church. There was disunity and factionalism. People were treating the Lord's table like the Roman celebrations of Bacchus, the pagan god of wine, meaning they were literally apparently getting drunk at the Lord's table. There was gross sin in their midst, sexual sin. One guy had an incestuous relationship with his father's wife, chapter 5, verse 1. And in that chapter 5, Paul scolds the Corinthians for not excommunicating that guy. They had elevated him to a position of prominence, and they were celebrating his sin, just like the gay pride people today do, proud of themselves that they were tolerant enough to receive this. And uh, Paul scolds them for that, and then he ends chapter 5 with this exhortation. Do you not judge those who are within the church? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. He orders them to excommunicate him. And while he is on the subject of judging those who are within the church, 
he scolds them for going outside the church to settle their disputes with one another. And that's where our chapter starts. Chapter 6, verse 1. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Now, evidently, they were bringing lawsuits against one another in secular courts. And so in the first eight verses of this chapter, Paul chastises them for letting the unrighteous rather than the saints make moral judgments for them. And ultimately, he says, if you bring a lawsuit against a fellow believer in court, you've already lost the most important part of your whole case. Verse 7, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, he says, verse 8, if you sue a fellow Christian, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. So if you bring a lawsuit against a fellow Christian, no matter whether you're in the right in the, in the issues that the case is about, you make yourself wrong because you, he says, wrong and defraud your brother. Even if you're suing because you are absolutely convinced that you are in the right, you now put yourself in the wrong against your brother by taking this course of action dragging him in front of an unbeliever to make a judgment on him. This is not a Christian way of settling disputes within the church. And that brings us then to our passage. And it may seem like Paul makes a, an abrupt shift in topics here, but I don't think so. I think what he has to say in our three verses tell us about how he was thinking what a grievous sin it is for a Christian to take another believer to court. Because in the first place, a, a lawsuit in a secular court puts the, a moral judgment between two Christians into the hands of a judge who in all likelihood is unrighteous, verse 1. And in the second place, to do that is wrong and it defrauds the whole church. So to sue a fellow Christian is itself a grievous sin. It's unrighteous. And so in our text... Paul is, in effect, giving a double-edged reason for saying why he thinks it's better to suffer wrong than it is to do wrong. One, because the unrighteous judge in whose hands you put this moral decision, he's not even a citizen of the kingdom you profess loyalty to. And number two, because if your own life is dominated by unrighteousness of any kind, you're probably outside the kingdom as well. Now, he still, I believe, has in mind these people who were suing their fellow Christians, and he's hinting here that this is an unrighteousness that would exclude them, if they don't repent of it, it will exclude them from the kingdom of heaven. And so the truth he wants them to understand applies to all sin, not just frivolous lawsuits, not just sexual sin either, but to make the point clear he gives a list of typical Corinthian sins. And notice that sexual perversions, and homosexuality in particular, dominate his list. So here's our text, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. And I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, which is an adaptation of the, the NAS, the New American Standard. So if you have that, it'll be close. But this is the Legacy Standard Bible. He says... Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So his point here is very clear. If the character qualities and the lifestyle that define your life, if they are unrighteous, if your desires and your deeds and your disposition are utterly devoted to the pursuit of some self-serving sin, and especially if you self-identify with a label that signifies some wicked lust or evil pattern of life, then Paul says you're not a redeemed person and you shouldn't deceive yourself into thinking that you are. I don't think he could make this case any more clear than he does here. I would struggle to state what he's saying any more clearly than he does. Now, it doesn't mean, of course, that if you've ever once committed any of the sins he names, then you are forever doomed. He's not saying these are unpardonable sins. He, he also doesn't mean that you're, you're guilty of some unpardonable evil so that you'll never inherit the kingdom of God if some sinful lust seems to stalk you constantly waging war against your soul. And in fact, the context here destroys that idea. You'll see that when we get to verse 11. In, in fact, to quote John Calvin, he says, by the unrighteous here, as for example, adulterers and thieves and covetous and revilers, he means those who don't repent of their sins, but who obstinately persist in them. Because the truth is, Every one of us struggles with ungodly desires, not necessarily all the same desires, but all of us fight against ungodly desires. Paul himself confesses in Romans 7 that he waged a lifelong battle against coveting, he says, coveting of every kind. That's the exact expression, expression he uses in Romans 7 verse 8, and he's using a Greek term, epithumia, that speaks of lust. It's not as antiseptic as the English word coveting. He's talking here about lust, or in other words, a desire for something that you cannot lawfully obtain. And uh, it's the same word he uses in Ephesians 2 verse 3, where he says, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. And now, what he's saying in Romans 7 is not that he now lives in the lust, but that he does still have to wage constant war against his evil desires. And he says this is a battle he knows he will fight until he is finally set free from the body of this death. And so I say again, all of our evil desires, all of them are sins to be mortified. So same-sex attraction, a desire for what God forbids, is not a, that's not a neutral quality to be embraced and celebrated and it certainly shouldn't be worn by any Christian as a badge of identity. And as I survey these three verses, I notice three truths here about sin and its remedy that arise from the text. The first is about sin and delusion. If you want to take these down, three points. Sin and delusion is the first point he's making. Notice he's saying that all of our sins breed self-deception. If you're living in sin, if you're accommodating sin in your life, you're self-deceived. And that's why he says, verse 9, do you not know 
Do not be deceived. He's telling them, get your thinking straight. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, that's basic truth. The unrighteous don't inherit the kingdom of God. That's taught clearly even in the Old Testament. Psalm 24, verses 3 through 5. Who may ascend into the holy hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So the point there is you have to have a righteous character to make it into heaven. And in fact, the very first psalm ends with this. The wicked do not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The way of the wicked will perish. And again, I could quote a host of Old Testament verses that say similar things. And here Paul says, don't be deceived. You know this truth. You cannot celebrate sin. At the same time, you believe you're just blithely on the way to heaven. So who or what had deceived the Corinthians? Well, in this case, it was their own sin. They were self-deceived because of their sin. And it is a fact that all sin has this delusional quality. Sin hoodwinks us, and in the process, it hardens us. Hebrews 3.13 says, Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And the Apostle Paul, when he's in chapter 7 of Romans, recalling how indulging in unbridled lust almost cost him his soul, he says in Romans 7 verse 11, Sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. In Ephesians 4.22, he speaks of the lusts of deceit. And, and so, Scripture's clear, all sin, and lust in particular, is inherently deceptive. It will mislead you. It, it deceives you. And that means that when we sin, it's like inviting deception. Self-deception. Sin fosters confusion and error and doctrinal derailment. Don't deceive yourself into enthroning sin in your life. And don't take doctrinal counsel from someone who's trying to justify his own sin. People who live under the bondage of sin, while they profess to be Christians, are simply delusional because the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. And let me say this while we're on the subject. The fact that sin is so deceptive is a truth that should provoke more compassion than judgmentalism from us, especially for people who are outside the church. They're lost and they're spiritually blind and they are headed for eternal judgment. And what they need to hear from us is the truth of the gospel after they've absorbed the condemnation of the law. They need to hear both. But their crying need is for the truth of the gospel, not merely the condemnation of the law. They do need to hear the law first, but you understand, I hope, that the law alone is a message of utter irreversible doom for sinners. Galatians 3.10, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 27.26 to make exactly that point where he says, it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. The law only has a curse for sinners. 
The law shows no mercy to sinners. The gospel, on the other hand, is full of mercy for sinners, but make no mistake, while the gospel is mercy, merciful towards sinners, it has no mercy for sin itself. Romans 8, verse 3, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And so Paul says, don't let sin deceive you. Don't live under the delusion that you can indulge in promiscuous sins and yet rest confident in your salvation. People who are abandoned to sin, people whose true character is defined by evil, people who self-identify by their own sinful desires, people given over to a sinful lifestyle, people whose consciences are not troubled when wicked desires arise from within themselves, people like that will not inherit the kingdom of God. But your own sin will tell you otherwise. Sin is inherently deceptive because it wants mastery over us. Scripture's full of warnings about this. And it's interesting how often Scripture personifies sin always as a trickster or a usurper. So from the start of Scripture, in Genesis 4, verse 7, the Lord says to Cain, sin is crouching at the doors. He pictures sin like a... Like a sentient being almost, crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now, you know, sin is not really a personal force, but it is inherently deceptive, and it clouds our judgment, it confuses our moral sense, and it sears our consciences, and it even warps our belief system. In fact, there's a name for this. We speak of it as the noetic effect of sin. And what that means in layman's terms is sin will make you stupid. It shrouds us in delusions. Do not be deceived. And in fact, the current level of widespread delusion over these very subjects among evangelicals, that's really quite remarkable. And it vividly shows the dangers of following the culture rather than submitting to what God's word says become stylish in some evangelical circles for people to identify themselves by their grossest besetting sins. That is unheard of in church history. You won't find anywhere in church history where people boast about being a same-sex attracted Christian or a gay Christian. That doesn't exist. And in fact, it is a gross insanity that undermines sanctification to identify yourself by a persistent sin like that. It's a denial of what this passage teaches. And so that's the first thing to notice in this passage with regard to sin and delusion. All of, all of our sins breed self-deception. Here's a second truth, and this one is about sin and destruction. I tried to make these alliterated. Sin and destruction. And the lesson here is that all of our sins are exceedingly sinful. And they damage everything they touch. Sin, if tolerated, will utterly and eternally ruin you. Verses 9 and 10. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. Now notice, let's analyze this. He names ten specific sins. 
and they fall into two categories. The first five are sexual sins, and the second five are social sins. And he's not trying to give a, an exhaustive list of sinful categories. These are representative sins that they actually span the whole moral law, and as it's revealed in the Ten Commandments, we could analyze that if we wanted to, but we, we don't need to. There are ten of them. They fall into two categories, sexual sins and social sins. And Paul here is writing, remember, to an audience of mostly former pagans, Gentiles. And so he doesn't use the language of the Decalogue. He could go to the Ten Commandments to make this point, but he doesn't. Instead, he gives a list of sins. And why does he group these together? Because these were staples in the Corinthian culture. These are the sins that dominated that culture. And, and notice, he makes no effort to soften the truth or accommodate the drift of that culture. This is the polar opposite of the seeker-sensitive approach. Because homosexuality was just as prevalent, maybe even more so, in Corinthian society as it is in ours. And it's clear, isn't it, that Paul is not trying here to contextualize the message in a, in a way to make, that would make it more palatable to a society that was in love with their sexual perversions. He doesn't soften it at all. And also notice this. Those two verses read like a short list of the characteristic sins of 21st century Hollywood culture, too. We're not that all that different from the Corinthians. These are all debasing and degrading sins. They're all fleshly sins of wicked self-gratification. That's really what they all have in common. There are different ways to gratify one's evil desire. And Paul's point here is not to make all of these sins equivalent. That's not the point. Some people try to do that and say, well, this is sin and that's sin, and so one's just as bad as the other. Scripture's pretty clear. There are degrees of sin. Jesus specifically said that Judas's sin was worse than Pontius Pilate's. So there are degrees of sin. Some things are worse than other, but the fact is there's no sin that's any good. And so, in fact, we know that there are some sins worse than others. That's even one of the points Paul himself makes about homosexuality in Romans 1 when he talks about the gradual descent of humanity into grosser and more evil forms of wickedness. He says at one point, even their women exchange the natural use for that which is against nature, as if he sees something uncommonly wicked or profoundly aberrant in the L category of the LGBTQ alphabet. And so I don't think in this passage, our passage, I don't think he's trying to make an equivalency between all of these sins, treating all of these as equally grotesque. But the sins he names in our passage, in fact, they're not, they're clearly not equally vile transgressions. I doubt that anyone really believes that in the hierarchy of evils, an act of adultery is really no worse than a fleeting whisper of greed, Right? And yet, as Paul says in Romans 7, all, all sin is exceedingly sinful. Any of these sins, even the tiny whisper of greed, these will not only keep you out of the kingdom, they'll send you to hell. Every person who revels in sin, whether he's a respectable person who you know, has some vice or, or evil that he's not necessarily ashamed to show to the public, 
Every sinner will suffer eternal condemnation under God's wrath if they don't repent. Revelation 21 verse 8, from the merely cowardly and unbelieving to those who are notoriously abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So again, all sin is exceedingly sinful, and every sin you don't repent of could send you to hell. But in this passage, our passage, he lists 10 specific sins, and they fall into these two broad categories. The five sins that are named in verse 9 are sexual perversions. The other five, named in verse 10, are social vices. And again, all 10 of these evils were things that dominated and characterized the culture of the entire city of Corinth, the secular world in Corinth. And in fact, notice, in fact, that Paul gives a very similar list of Corinthian evils just one chapter earlier than this. You can flip back and see it, 1 Corinthians 5.11, where he says, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. And in that list, he leaves out thievery, but he pretty much covers all the same categories. And his point in chapter 5 is that those were the exact sins that colored Corinthian culture. And so he says, chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, but, he says, I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. So he's saying, treat worldly sinners, unbelieving sinners, with compassion and seek to win them to Christ. But those sins are not to be tolerated, and especially in the church. Paul says, actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's pursuing a lifestyle that's colored by those sins. Chapter 5, verse 13. Those who are outside, that is, unbelievers, God judges, but within the fellowship of believers, you need to remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Excommunicate this guy. And that's in perfect harmony with the point he's making in our passage, that sin has no rightful place in the life of a believer. And again, he's not, making, he's not trying to make the point that true Christians are sinless. That's not his point. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That's 1 John 1, 8, and Paul certainly would have agreed with that. On the other hand, 1 John 1, 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. You can't revel in your sin and embrace it and continue in it without repentance and still claim to be a believer. If you're walking in darkness, if you're continually given over to the pursuit of sin or, or passively tolerating an unbroken pattern of sin in your life, then you have no right to any kind of assurance that you are a true Christian. And Paul and John are in perfect agreement about that. So, look at the five kinds of sinners he names in verse 9. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, and homosexuals. And if you're looking at the New American Standard Bible, the first, first one in that list is translated as fornicators. Both the English Standard Version and the Legacy Standard Bible have just the sexually immoral 
The Greek term there is pornos. It's the same word, obviously, that's at the root of the English word pornography. It's a very broad expression that covers every kind of sexual debauchery. He could have left it at that and not named these other things. Frankly, it would apply to everything from sins of the imagination, pornography, even cyber sex, to abominations that would be too gross to name. Paul could have, like I said, just let that term stand and he wouldn't have needed to single out adulterers and effeminate and homosexuals because those evils are all included in the term pornos. But I think he may have a specific case in mind here. And so he names these gender-twisting sins by name. And I'm glad he does because it makes this so relevant to what's going on in our culture today. And by the way, in case you're wondering, idolatry kind of stands out there because you might look at that and say, well, that's not a sexual sin. But it is because gross sexual sins of all kinds were woven into every Corinthian form of idolatry. In Corinth, fornication was deemed a religious sacrament, literally. The plethora of temples in that town were all staffed by temple prostitutes engaging in fornication or grosser activities. Uh, and that was, to do that, was deemed a sacred act of worship in that pagan culture. The Greek historian Strabo in the year 2 BC, so this is the early first century, or just before the first century, he wrote, quote, the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth was so rich that it employed more than a thousand prostitutes, both men and women. So Corinthian idolatry took, literally, it was a form of illicit sexual gratification. And apparently there were people in and around the Corinthian church who were prepared to accept the claim that this is normal and, you know, natural and morally neutral behavior. Because they had, after all, shown an arrogant tolerance of this one church member's incestuous relationship. So Paul is debunking the notion that you can tolerate, even passively tolerate, much less engage in conduct like that and still claim to be a Christian. He's saying Christians cannot look passively on that and accept it. Now, obviously, married people who indulge in any kind of activity like that are adulterers by definition. And Paul lists that. And then the next two words cover every kind of homosexual behavior. They both have to do with homosexuality. The Greek word translated effeminate is the Greek word malakoi. And it's a word that speaks of softness. And it's used actually only in two contexts in scripture. Uh, the other one, it's, it's here of course to speak of a sexual sin. But the other context is a statement that is found in both Matthew and Luke where Jesus is defending John the Baptist and he asks, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? And he uses that word, malakoi clothing. And so in both places, there and here, the word clearly has a negative connotation. I'll quote Calvin again. He says that this term refers to those who advertise their unchastity, and he's speaking here specifically of their tendency towards homosexuality. They advertise it by blandishments of speech, by lightness of gesture and apparel, and other allurements. In other words, men who act like women, effeminate. The Malakoi were men who would purposely adopt feminine mannerisms and speech patterns and gestures and 
clothing and temperaments, and you know that type because our culture is full of them. Effeminate is actually the perfect translation, but understand that when this word was used in ancient Greek sources, even outside scripture, it didn't merely refer to effeminate mannerisms or lisping speech. But the Malakoi, when, normally when this is used, it refers to homosexuals who take the female sexual part with other homosexuals. And so the pairing of these two terms, effeminate and homosexuals, is purposefully designed to include both partners in a homosexual act. Paul says you can't give yourself to that sin or that lifestyle and profess to be a Christian. Those who live that way do not inherit the kingdom of God. But then in verse 10, he also includes some of the standard social transgressions that gave Corinthian culture its reputation. And here's where he does go after greed. In fact, thievery and greed and drunkenness and swindling. These are self-explanatory words. They don't require a whole lot of exegesis. The expression revilers refers to people who use their words in a coarse or abusive way, either to rail against their neighbors with insults or to indulge in you know, hurtful tail-bearing, rumor spreading, or deliberate lying in order to damage another person's reputation, or, or they curse their neighbors, or even this applies even to the whispering gossips who, who purposefully vilify the character of other people. So this term is broad enough to cover all sins of the tongue that were designed to hurt someone else. And incidentally, this list of social sins in verse 10 suggests Paul is still thinking of the evils that arise from the lawsuit or lawsuits that someone in this church had brought against fellow believers in secular courts. Because thievery and greed and reviling and swindling these are all characteristics of the sinfully litigious person. And in any case, this whole group of sins in verse 10, and by the way, I, I think he groups these social sins that have to do, that, that are characteristic of someone who's suing a fellow believer. He groups them with these sexual sins just to make the point of how heinous it is. He's not, he's not trying to suggest that the sexual sins aren't any worse than reviling your neighbor but just the opposite he's saying reviling your neighbor is just as gross a sin as some sexual perversion so uh, notice this whole group of sins in verse 10 covers really every kind of unrighteousness that is designed purposely to inflict injury on other people and drunkenness is in the mix because that's actually one of the common means people use to drown out the feeling of guilt when they commit those kinds of sins. And Corinth was full of all of those evils. But Paul is saying these are all sins that have no place in the church. Ephesians 5, verse 3, immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So if sins like that aren't even to be named among you, you really shouldn't name yourself with those sins and call yourself a same-sex attracted believer. But I also need to add that these five sins named in verse 10, these are not just petty offenses against your neighbor. They're like sexual sin in that they are also sinful acts of fleshly 
Self-indulgence. These are sins that no Christian should ever be willing to live with and accept and embrace. For Christians, the biblical standard is clear. Philippians 1.27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And Paul restates the point of our text in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, where he says this in one verse, This you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. So he's clear, there's no such thing as a homosexual Christian. A person who's a full-time con artist isn't a Christian either, or a drunkard, chronic drunkard, who's unrepentant for that. He's not a Christian either. You are not a Christian unless you have renounced those sins and you're routinely trying to mortify those desires. In the words of Colossians 3.5, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry, for it is because of those things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. It's an even stronger statement. There he isn't just saying you won't inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying you persist in those sins, you will suffer the full outpouring of the wrath of God. So the message of Scripture is clear and consistent, isn't it? No sin, least of all homosexuality and gender bending, none of those things are ever to be sanctioned or normalized or given artificial validity in the life of the Christian. All sin is exceedingly sinful, and these hard-driving, habit-forming, character-shaping, lifestyle sins, we call them, these are especially enslaving. A life completely given over to these sins, or any one of them, is not a redeemed life. That's not what a redeemed life is supposed to look like. And that, once more, is the central point of this passage. So we've seen a lesson about sin and delusion, namely that all of our sins breed self-deception. We've seen a lesson about sin and destruction, that all of our sins are exceedingly sinful. And now here's a third lesson in this passage, and this one's a lesson about sin and deliverance. And this is my favorite part, because the message here is that all, all of our sins can be forgiven and cleansed. When the Apostle Paul says, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, or swindles will inherit the kingdom of God. If you think he's giving a list of unpardonable sins, or even gross sins that require some kind of extra penance, you've missed his point completely. In fact, his point is that these are the very kinds of sins that Corinthian believers had been delivered from. So these are forgivable sins. They're, they're sins to be repented of. They can't be adopted as badges of a Christian's identity. Verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. And this is the gospel promise. As I said at the beginning, the gospel is utterly intolerant of sin but it's full of mercy for sinners. And notice, Paul doesn't cite some good work that the redeemed members of the Corinthian assembly did in order to atone for their sins. He doesn't commend them for 
pulling themselves out of the miry clay of a corrupt culture. They have no basis whatsoever to be self-congratulatory, but Paul is reminding them what Christ had done for them. And he says so expressly. It's not that they had cleansed themselves, but that they were washed. It's a passive voice verb and used appropriately as such. They were washed and sanctified and justified in Christ's name through the agency of the Holy Spirit. This is what was done for them, not what they did for themselves. I read some commentaries about this verse where the commentator interpreted the washing as the ritual of baptism. And that, of course, is absurd. Baptism is symbolic. It doesn't literally cleanse anything. It symbolizes a cleansing that is done by the Holy Spirit with the water of the word. And in other words, it's a heart cleansing, which is something no sinner can do for himself. It's like any other, every other ritual you find in scripture from circumcision to baptism even. They're symbolic. The, the whole priesthood and the offerings in the Old Testament, these were all symbolic of what needed to be done to pay for sins. None of them was effectual in and of itself, and that's true of baptism. It is, as I said, a heart cleansing, and you can't do that for yourself. Titus 3.5, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual washing and a wholesale regeneration, in other words, the granting of a new heart. And that's the washing that is spoken of here in 1 Corinthians 6. Ephesians 5, verses 25 and 26, same thing. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water by the word. It's a spiritual washing. And by the way, Paul is not listing three separate events in these statements in verse 11. Washing and sanctification speak of exactly the same thing. And in this context, notice, Paul includes justification, which is uh, simply another aspect of what occurs to every believer in that first moment of faith. You're justified. In other words, all your sins are forgiven. Your conscience is cleansed. That's the washing. And in that same moment, all at once, we are, for the very first time in our lives, we are set free from the enslavement of sin, set apart from sin. That's the sanctification. And then the righteousness of Christ covers us like a robe, giving our own cleansed hearts a, a spotless covering of perfect righteousness. Because that heart that you have, the new heart even, isn't glorified yet. And you need a perfect righteousness. And Christ provides that by imputing his righteousness to us. That's justification. So washed and sanctified and justified, those verbs I want you to notice are all in past tense. He's telling the Corinthians, these things have already happened to you if you're true believers. Calvin says, these three terms express one and the same thing. And he goes on to clarify, Calvin does, that he doesn't mean to suggest that these are three technical theological terms that are exact synonyms. They're not. And it's important, actually, not to confound justification and sanctification. They're two separate things. But what we're saying is that Paul is pointing to the work of divine grace that happens in that first moment of faith. And he's, when you pass from death unto life, when the Lord brings us up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and 
sets our feet on a rock, that's what occurs at salvation. And it's, it's one momentary thing. It's not a long, drawn-out process that will eventually give you a right standing before God, but instantly those things happen the moment you believe. So that salvation means deliverance and cleansing from sin. God doesn't grant us new life and then leave us unchanged and helplessly in bondage to our sins so that we can just wallow in it for the rest of our lives. He gives us a new heart and new desires and new ambitions and new appetites and especially a new love for Christ, which means a yearning to be like him, to share in his glory. And that doesn't mean then that all the old appetites and habits immediately pass away completely doesn't happen. And that's what Paul's confessing in Romans 7 when he admits that he still struggles with some lusts. I've sometimes pictured the process of putting off the old self, you know. It's how scripture portrays sanctification. Put, on, put off the old self and put on the new. It's like the removal of Lazarus's grave clothes. You know, when Jesus raised him from the dead, Lazarus waddles to the mouth of the tomb in mummy clothes, basically. And people were so astonished that everyone was just frozen in place and looking at this moving mummy uh, all wrapped up in grave clothes. And scripture says, John eleven forty four, the man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings and his face was wrapped around him with a cloth. And Jesus had to say to them, unbind him and let him go. And the removal of Lazarus's grave clothes, it makes a good picture of what the process of sanctification is all about. And yet, as our text says, you were sanctified, past tense. In other words, you were liberated and set free from the absolute bondage of sin. You're still being sanctified as well, being further separated from sin as you are gradually conformed to the image of Christ, changed from glory to glory, but that's how scripture portrays it. It's a, it's a process the natural expected progress of salvation, but it doesn't leave anyone still wallowing in his sin and self-identifying as a, as a sinner. Now, it's true, as the Westminster Confession of Faith says, that our sanctification is imperfect in this life. None of us are perfectly sanctified, and there still abide some remnants of corruption in every part of our being, Westminster says. And, and furthermore, the confession goes on to say, true Christians may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world and the prevalency of corruption that remains in them and through the neglect of the means of their preservation, they may fall into grievous sins and for a time even continue therein. And in such cases, the confession says, they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit and they come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts their hearts are hardened, their consciences are wounded, they hurt and scandalize others, and they bring judgments upon themselves. But, Scripture says, true believers will ultimately repent of their wrongdoing, and they will persevere in the pursuit of righteousness. That is the mark of true faith. They wage warfare against their sins. They don't revel in it because they love it. They hate it. And it is God himself who guarantees our perseverance and our ultimate triumph. He is the one who's able to keep us from stumbling and to make us stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy, scripture says. 
On the other hand, those who abandon themselves completely to their sin, they prove beyond controversy that their faith was never genuine saving faith to begin with. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it could be shown that they are not all of us. I think when John wrote that, he's thinking of Judas, you know, who looked good for a long time. But he ultimately departed the faith, proving that he never had real faith to begin with. So here's the sum of our text. For a Christian, sin is not the norm. It cannot be. Sin is an interloper and an unacceptable intruder in the regenerate heart and the redeemed life of the true believer. We're not supposed to tolerate sin, much less celebrate it. You may have been a criminal or a drunkard or a pervert in your past life, but if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things have become, have come new. You, you do still have to wage war against the habits and appetites that your previous sins left you in battle with, but the sin itself is now foreign to you. It doesn't define who you are. And you need to live like you believe that. That's Romans 6, verses 11 through 14. Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not be master over you. That's a great promise. You're not under the law, but under grace. It doesn't mean the law has nothing to teach you. It doesn't mean that the moral standards of the law are irrelevant to you. They certainly are not. They define what sin is. But it does mean that you're not under the threat of condemnation from the law because you believed the gospel. So let me sum up. Although this passage issues this harsh and terrifying warning against all forms of evil and especially self-indulgent sins, it culminates in the wonderful good news of God's mercy towards the vilest kinds of sinners. And in an audience this size, in a culture like ours, I have no doubt that there could be people here whose lives are either secretly or perhaps even openly characterized by gross sin that you pursue compulsively. The weight of guilt hangs on you like a massive millstone that's chained around your neck. And what scripture is saying is there is forgiveness and cleansing. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 Timothy 1.5, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and Paul adds, among whom I'm foremost of all. He was actually a murderer whom God saved and cleansed. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed 
and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That is, I would say, the most notable and reliable characteristic of a genuine believer. He is zealous for good works. He doesn't try to justify his evil lusts. He doesn't identify himself by whatever perversion might strongly tempt him. But his identity, indeed his very life, is in Christ, whom he has laid hold of by faith. And Paul follows up those words to Titus by saying, these things speak and exhort and reprove with with all authority, let no one disregard you. And that includes every attempt by earthly governments to silence the truth from ordinances to federal laws that might try to keep us from saying these things publicly. We have to live by Acts 14 verses 19, or Acts 4 verses 19 through 20. Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And then in the very next chapter, Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. That's our commission. It means we have to speak the truth even after it becomes illegal to do so, which I'm convinced is very much a likelihood in our lifetimes. And if it means we land in prison for speaking the truth, may God grant us a fruitful prison ministry. Let's pray. Father, this passage is convicting to all of us. It reminds us of our utter dependence on your grace because there have been too many times when we've succumbed to the lures and the temptations of this world and our flesh and the devil May sin never define who we are. May Christ always be our first love. Kindle a fiery passion for righteousness in our hearts. Give us the strength of will and the spiritual resolve to mortify the deeds of the flesh and flee the devil and renounce the world. And may you conform us to the perfect likeness of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.